Welcome to the That Don't Fit podcast, a podcast where we're dedicated to talking about life and life's real issues that cross racial and generational lines. My name is Jared Torrance, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Farmer. We're friends, we're pastors, we're wanting to help people talk and process life in a crazy world. Welcome to the conversation. So tonight we're going to talk about the gospel theme of redemption and how that can be applied to issues of race and ethnic strife. Biblically speaking, redemption can speak of the entire saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But redemption is also descriptive of a specific facet of that saving work of Christ. In its narrower, more technical sense, it speaks of being rescued or even being purchased out of bondage or oppression and set free. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is very important. It's from the same word group as the word we translate redemption. In other words, a a ransom is the payment that produces redemption. When you see the word ransom, it's specifically talking about the paying of a price to deliver someone into freedom. Jesus is saying that he came to pay the ransom price to set people free. That's redemption. That's one important implication of the death of Christ for us, to redeem us for freedom. Now, redemption implies that we need redeeming. We are not free in our natural state. We are in a condition of, I would call it unfreedom, that needs to be resolved. Human beings live with a profound sense of unfreedom. Unfreedom can cover a lot of things. It can cover slavery in any form. It can cover oppression. It can also speak of a dependence, being dependent on someone or something besides ourselves. Unfreedom means there are limits to what we can do, where we can go, how we can live, and what we can be. We live in a world of unfreedom. Now tonight I want to talk about this in three ways. How we experience unfreedom, how the gospel of redemption addresses unfreedom, and how that can help us address the unfreedom in our world. So first point, how do we experience unfreedom? So very briefly, I'm going to break it down into three kinds of unfreedom. There is what I might call systematic unfreedom or systemic unfreedom. Now, this is getting most of of the attention in 2020, and that's not inappropriate. The question of how much the government has a right to restrict the lives of citizens in a pandemic is seen as a freedom issue. Can the government force us into a place of unfreedoms? 
because of pandemic conditions. Both presidential campaigns are making their appeal to voters on what the other side will do to restrict or roll back our freedoms. Certainly the civil protests confront questions of systemic oppression and denials of freedoms based on race. Systemic unfreedom can come from laws that favor some while restricting others, or it can come from culture where power is held by some at the expense of others. The challenge with systemic unfreedom is that the people who benefit from it usually have the hardest time seeing it as oppression of someone else. My experience of freedom often makes me blind to how that freedom may impinge on someone else. Now, before I start to sound like a radical social justice advocate, let me read some language that might sound familiar to you. A long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invents a design to reduce them, the people, under absolute despotism. Repeated injuries and usurpations, absolute tyranny, deaf to the voice of justice. If that sounds vaguely familiar, it ought. These are words taken directly from the Declaration of Independence. The document that set the British colonies on the road toward becoming the United States of America. You see, it's inherently American. It's built into our DNA as a culture. It's inherently patriotic, in a sense, to raise your voice and and act against systemic unfreedom. That's what the founders did in declaring independence. That's what the revolution was about. That's what their forefathers did in coming to America to escape religious unfreedom, to escape economic unfreedom, to escape class unfreedom. So we'll come back to this, but I want to root this in the Bible, establishing that this is a very American understanding. I want to root it in the Bible. The scriptures tell us that this is exactly how the world apart from Christ will function. The world is governed by sinners will express that sin in its institutions and systems. If you want to map the genetic code of the world's oppressive systems, 1 John 2, 16 and 17 will give you all the DNA you need. John writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What John is saying is that world systems are set up because the world problem is the lust of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That's what drives how we set things up. That's endemic in every culture. Now, I'd love to preach on politics from this text right now, but I have to move on. But we need to see 
that this is what world systems produce. And it's because sinners run those systems. There's a second kind of unfreedom. Personal unfreedom, I would call it. I'm not going to say too much here. I simply mean we're not free to do what we want. Nobody is. We all have limits. Say, free will doesn't exist. We all have limits. Time is a limit on our lives. Space is a limit on our lives. Age is a limit on our lives. Gender is a limit. Size is a limit. Strengths are a limit. Weaknesses are a limit. Health is a limit. Life experiences are a limit. Money is a limit. All humans are in the condition of unfreedom because of sin. The fall cost us our freedom. The deepest unfreedom of all is the bondage of our souls. We are, according to the Bible, slaves to sin, enslaved to the God of self. All other unfreedom flows out of this fundamental unfreedom. Now, we think we want independence. That's what we crave, independence. But we are wrong. We were never created to live as independent beings. We were created to be dependent on our creator God for life and meaning and identity. The thing Adam and Eve were offered by, offered by Satan in the garden was freedom from dependence on their creator God. In taking that apple, they thought they were getting freedom to determine their own lives. Instead, they sold themselves into the tyranny of sin. From that point on, human existence and human society has been a constant struggle to to gain an elusive sense of freedom and power by oppressing others who stand in our way. Jesus paid the ransom price to redeem us. Jesus accepted the punishment for our sin that we deserved. He paid the price that was beyond our ability to pay. Jesus is the only human being, the Bible makes it very clear that he is fully human, who entered this world free of the bondage of sin. And he lived his life unfettered from the sins that ensnare you and me. He was the only truly free person who ever existed. Because he is one of us, but free of sin, he could offer himself as the ransom to purchase our freedom. Because he is fully God, his precious blood is the full ransom price paid. His payment is fully sufficient for the many enslaved in sin to be free. We should have compassion and mercy on the oppressed if we understand our redemption. And also on those who think they can solve sin problems through human effort. This is something I feel like we need to do better at as a church. I feel like we, I think we have a a heart for the oppressed. I think we can be self-righteous to those who are different than us, who are trying to help the oppressed. The redeemed cannot be self-righteous. The redeemed need to have some measure of compassion for those who are spending their lives trying to make changes when history and reality says the more things change, the more they stay the same. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. 
We were purchased, finally, to live for the true freedom of others. To do that redemptive work, we need to be in places where people feel the need for freedom. We need to be out there where people feel their unfreedom, whatever that is. That's our ministry context. That's our mission context. That's where we belong. We don't want to hide in our sense of churchy freedom. We don't want to hide defensive of anything that might encroach. We want to live evangelically. We want to live out among the people who need Christ because we have the message of redemption. We may not be able to impose that message on structures, but we can certainly interact with the people who are in those structures and Jesus Christ can make his own freedom known to them. We go out to serve, but we serve carrying a message. And that message is that Jesus Christ came and paid the ransom to set us free. Amen. So, given what Andy just shared, is there any uh, takeaways or anything that elicited some thoughts that you guys want to talk through um, one thing I wanted to, to say is um, in, in the spirit of making sure that we don't lose people when we talk about oppression, and we've said this before, you know, but I think that it, as Andy's teach and just we're, we're thinking about this large category of oppression, I think because of our cultural climate, there can be those who just hear oppression language and are like, no, that's, and, and tend to think in terms of oppressor and oppressed paradigms as categories for everything. So like, there needs to be a way, and I think this is exactly it, to talk about yeah. the biblical category yeah. of oppression, which is a major category of, of suffering and hardship that marks every culture and every nation. Um, and so I would just say if, that, if there's a reaction to, wait, oppression, you know, language, um, do a biblical study of of oppression and realize that that language is language that we want to hold on to as the people of God because it's it's biblical yes. language. Ecclesiastes four one talks about uh, all of the oppressions done under the sun, and so that that broader idea of yeah, you see oppression on the playground, you know, is is absolutely uh, right, and in keeping with the biblical the biblical language. Yeah, just to add to that, I I mean. The whole New Testament sets itself up as a, as a book written to oppressed people. The Jews were oppressed in Rome by, by the Romans. They were under Roman oppression. Um, in the New Testament, the, uh, the, the church was oppressed both by, by the, the Gentiles and, and by the Jews for a long time. So you can't read a New Testament, you can't read the book of Acts without seeing oppression as a category now, and it's often called persecution. Uh, and so I think we want to see this idea is not just simply, well, you can find a thread of it in the Bible. The, the context of the New Testament particularly, I would say the Old Testament too, but is written with the idea that oppression is uh, the normal state where people go meet, where God goes to meet people. God meets people in their oppression. And the ultimate oppression then, of course, is the oppression of sin in our hearts, but that's it's a, it's a profound reality that we all live in. Yeah, and, and even when we, 
you know, we're, so we're talking about gospel of redemption. We're talking about how the gospel redeems everything, aspects of us and, mm-hmm. and redeems our whole lives. So something I want to caution, once again, our, our listeners right now, when the term privilege comes out, that's another... I keep throwing words out that you have to <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> Come on, Andy. We're, we're like, like, what we mean by that, that or what we don't mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I got other words, too, I can throw out there, too, so I can keep guys on defensive the whole time. <laughs> and so what, what we're talking about is, is, you know, people hear privilege, they think, oh, I didn't work for anything, oh, blah, 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 how dare they bring that on me? That's not what we're saying. Yeah. We're saying a privilege means there's a certain aspect of your life that that is uh, uh, is different from others that may have beneficiary values to it, which is not inherently sinful. No. Like, that's not a bad thing. Uh, what can be bad is when people use privileges uh, in order to oppress others or in order to get ahead or if they understand and are able to work the systems um, that are unjust uh, for to further their... Uh, their status to further what they're doing to make it ahead in the game. Um, Mm -hmm. That is where it gets unhelpful. But uh, if we look at certain privileges and we use them to, to assist and to help others and to lift up the hand of the downtrodden, that is gospel redemptive work uh, for, for something that God has worked sovereign, sovereignly in our lives for us to be able to help those who are in need. One of the things I saw in several places is people commenting on the view of the Old Testament and how sort of the, the white church, you know, I would say the white Reformed Evangelical Church, historically, the paradigmatic uh, Old Testament figure was David. And the, the paradigmatic story was how God uses someone who is fallible to accomplish his great, uh, his great uh, purposes. Um, the paradigmatic story for the black church has always been Exodus and the figure being Moses and how it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a picture of deliverance. And so it's very interesting redemption, but there are two different types of redemption there. One's an individual redemption of someone in their weaknesses being redeemed and then one is a collective redemption of people being brought out into freedom. And I, in some sense, I feel like we could, we could do a better job, black church, white church, if we understood those two paradigms together more. We, we talked about them. We related about them. We closed the gap in our Bible reading in the Old Testament um, because I think there's a profound sense that the white church has tended to view things individualistically. And David is a personal example for me. Whereas Moses is a collective example of the people. And so I feel like that, that's where I think, you know, reading from the black church can be very powerful because you get an aspect of the, the Old Testament that doesn't fall into the way we've typically approached the Old Testament. And I think my black brothers and sisters would benefit from, let's look at David afresh um, from our experience because there's a tendency when those who are oppressed, they can lose sight of their own sin and their own need for personal intervention. So I think the ability to kind of bring those together can be a really great way to have conversations along redemption lines. Yes, and it is, it is a miracle. I mean, I would encourage members of the church to study the history of 
the the black church it's a miracle that the black church exists because because <laughs> they, they they saw a christianity of slaveholders they saw a christianity of of oppressors and yet as they read their bibles they saw and in the exodus story in particular a god and they saw jesus who identifies more with the oppressed and the enslaved uh, than he does with with the, with the oppressors and with the with the slave owners, and so that uh, that 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 the black church was able to emerge from that and to see uh, the heart of God and Christ for who He is is just is just an incredible thing. And if you study throughout that history, there there was um, you know the the emergence in the, in this last century of uh, of liberation theology, black liberation theology that uh, came with its dangers that basically centered that basically views Exodus as a paradigm for um, okay, this is what the church should be all about. It's a the faith. absence of the David factor, which is. The problem is here. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, so that faith becomes entirely about political and social yeah, activism. Yeah. How do we change Moving what's out there? Moving everyone forward, yes. not about my own sin. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we want to avoid that when we talk about uh, redemption and liberation uh, and yet realize that there's something in the Exodus story for us today. Yeah, it's, it's funny because there's, there's a real part in which we need the both and, and uh, which is why we love the ideas of multi-ethnic churches, which is why we love the ideas of, of unity and diversity. We, because God, like God has a plan. God has sovereignly ordained certain things to happen and there are, there are glorious um, benefits. Bene- uh, benefits of certain things of how people have raised, how like black culture, like oftentimes we operate in a we mindset like there is a togetherness there is a collectiveness that happens like if something happens uh we feel it and so you know the church is ought to be united the church ought to be a we entity and um but on the flip side like we like we've just been talking about there is like there is an individual portion of like yeah i need to be in my Bible. I need to, I need to work on sanctification. I need to trust the Holy Spirit to, to help me grow and to, to fight the sin in my heart. And then, you know, uh, the white church can benefit by growing in a we-ness, like, like mm-hmm. a, a, a we-centered, like a we-thoughtfulness of like a collective, we are united, which I think can explain some of the issues that we are having in the year of 2020. Yeah. Like the church as a whole is going through something right now. And we're not used to collectively experiencing something. And and so I I believe, oh man, Lord, I'm praying right now even that, that we would grow in an understanding of unity and togetherness and being uh, a people. Like the church is a people. And um, yeah, and and it's glorious. And God is doing something very specific this year. I think in helping us recover yeah. uh, some of that and uh, to benefit from one another in that yeah. too. I'm interested in your thoughts on on how do we relate to this? We people who have a real desire to get involved, mm-hmm. you know, step outside the Christian evangelism world, mission world into. I want to get involved in that cause. I want to do something like that. Should that be something applauded? Should it be something that we are cautioning people? How should we handle that? Uh, I think it's the same way we have to approach 
other good things in the Christian life. Like when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, then it becomes an idol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean we throw it off all yeah. completely. Um, actually, if my phone doesn't die, uh, Propaganda, who's a hip hop artist, he has a uh, a song he he wrote where he's addressed, where he's kind of addressing this this kind of thing, and he says. Uh, you're, you don't realize what you're really running from. So this is God speaking to to uh, propaganda, and what you're really really fighting for. It's a frightening indictment that even if all these world problems are solved, it still wouldn't resolve what you are actually looking for. And it's not like these problems they don't need to be addressed, but fixing systemic issues it ain't the source of your rest or satisfaction. And I know what your life's worth. But the work of a man's hand, it has never quenched his thirst. You say I'm king of kings, but son, I don't get it how. You could trust me for eternity, but can't trust me for now. Hoping in a broken system to fix what's broken in us. It's not working, is it? And so I, I think even in that, he's, he's wrestling with the fact that like, I have yep. these, th- there, there are systemic issues that need to be addressed. But... If all of those systems were solved and, it, and it's, it's all perfectly just again, that is not going to be the source of our rest. The source of our rest has already been solved, which is the sin within us, which mm-hmm. is Christ dying on the cross for us. And so that has to stay the ultimate thing, which allows us to also address these good things, these things that we ought to be fighting for, these things that we ought to champion in a certain way. But we have to, have to, have to keep ourselves in check to make sure that good things don't become ultimate things unless that good thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay. And I, I love what you said, because I think the tendency for these kind of things, if we start moving toward them, is they, they become all-consuming. Uh, they get our attention. We feel it. And it, because, because we are, we're close enough to it, to where it does, we see the true evil in it. Right. And that but the hard part about the believer is somewhere along the line, you can give in to agitation and lose the very thing that you're meant to contribute. The world doesn't need more people working harder. The world needs people working with something going on. The joy of the Lord. We, mm-hmm. we, we want to move toward things. but And that's my concern. I mean, yep. 2020 right. is, is the loss of shalom. Right. You talked about last last time we were together. It's yeah. I lost my shalom somewhere along the way. I lost mm-hmm. my peace. Yeah. I'm 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 worried about far too many things yeah. and I don't have anything to do with any of them. Yeah. In a, in a personal way. So I think we become ineffective. Mm-hmm. We come in become ineffective if the cause overtakes our lives. Right. Because we're sent for another reason. And I and I don't want to lose something you said there. You said as we get down along the line at some point, we lose the one thing we're bringing. We get agitated. Yeah. Uh, I guess this would just be a word of warning. That line is f- is way earlier than we anticipate. <laughs> that that line comes very quick because you can find yourself in these rabbit holes of just oh, there's another injustice story. Oh, there's this. Oh, there's this. Oh, another person happened. Oh, oh my gosh, and this and this, and all of a sudden you're just enraged. Yeah. You know, I realize it, and it happens with I- any kind of issue. 
anyone on any side of these things can find themselves in these rabbit holes and social media is literally designed to agitate you yeah. it's it's designed to feed and fuel your rage and anger so that that line is way behind you and don't even realize it and what's happening is the church is destroying our witness in these things the best thing that we can bring to these types of conversations and these kinds of justice causes is to bring the gentle loving uh, 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 love that we've received from Christ himself yeah. That's what we bring to these things. When I am talking with someone who is on opposite sides of issues with me and I'm seeking to actually understand them, not just like word of mouth, like, oh, I want to understand you, but I, really I want you to stop talking so I can yell at you. No, but when I'm actually trying to understand them and I'm coming at them with the gentleness of the Savior, that's that's where hearts are changed. That's where love is grown. That's where uh, our witness is not wasted. Let's not waste our yeah, witness. Let's not waste our witness. That's right. Yeah. And that's one of the things that can make it difficult to, when you talk about, okay, those who are engaged in the in various areas, why is it that we can have a hard time support? Well, sometimes we see people engage in things and you know that's not it uh that that's not what we're aiming for uh they whether they are angry whether they are uh taking a destructive approach either yeah. relationally or to actual property um we say okay that's not the way to uh to engage issues of, of oppression. There's a, Tim Keller talks about how only the gospel provides a justice that doesn't create new oppressors. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. He, he says the cross breaks the cycle of oppression in more ways than one. And then he says this, and this came to mind because of how people engage these issues. People who are passionate about justice often become self-righteous and cruel when they confront persons whom they perceive as being oppressors. However, believers in Christ are taught to confess that they have wronged God by wronging others who are made in his image. We have not loved and honored our neighbors as we wish to be treated. In other words, he says, every Christian who understands the gospel admits that he or she has been an oppressor. <laughs> yeah. Every Christian who understands the gospel admits that he or she has been an oppressor. And he says, when we lie, we deprive people of truth they have a right to. When we break promises, we deprive people of goods they have a right to. If we're not poor and we close our hearts to those who are, we deprive them of the sustenance they have a right to. So he says, Christians know they have the hearts of oppressors, yet have been saved by grace nonetheless. And so when we, when we confront an oppressor, we do it with steely and courageous determination, he says, but the gospel teaches us to do so without self-righteousness or bullying. Mm -hmm. They cannot hate haters or justify oppressing people they think are oppressors, yeah. which is what you can have in this world. Yeah. Um, it's, it's addressing oppression with more oppression. Right. That's not it. The gospel creates those who do address issues of oppression, but do so with truth, with yeah. grace, with love. <laughs>